Welcome to life on earth. Welcome to life on earth. Welcome to life on earth. Well, hello, you good people, and welcome to life on earth. Y'all are in the chat already and beat me to the punch. Thank you for joining me. I got to talk. I got to talk about Will McCaskill. Everybody's talking about Will McCaskill. This is one thing when he starts with the fact of altruism in his book, Doing Good Better. You know, as objectivists, we're not altruists. We can shrug that off. But now he's back on the New York Times bestsellers list. What the heck? With the new book, What We Owe the Future. So, of course, I want to know. I want to know what we owe the future. I want to know what you owe the future. So let's talk about that. You know, Ayn Rand in her talk, Philosophy Who Needs It, said, in regard to my philosophy, formally I call it objectivism, but informally I call it a philosophy for living on earth. Well, Will McCaskill has a philosophy for living on earth. And because he is the effective philosophic leader of the effective altruism movement, of course, Peter Singer, everybody's favorite utilitarian, the leader of altruism in general these days, but McCaskill really is on all the shows, on all the podcasts, on the New York Times bestseller list. But okay, I got to read this book. I got to find out why he thinks we owe the future something. So in seeking to understand, I started by researching his earlier book, Doing Good Better. <laughs> Doing Good Better. I love that title. It sounds like, you know, me speak good someday. Doing Good Better, his book on effective altruism, the case for effective altruism, because I was hoping, here's what I was hoping for. If you look at the show notes, and there are links, there are show notes, facebook.com slash Robert Naser. I did a previous episode on altruism back when Ryan Holiday released his book, uh, Ego is the Enemy. And I've been trying to figure out, not going back to Auguste Comte, but in modern times, why is altruism? Why is self-sacrifice regarded as an ideal? So I was hoping that in making the case for effective altruism, as Will McCaskill does so effectively, you know, think of it as pragmatic altruism, doing, doing your best to make an impossible ideal work. I was hoping that he'd also make that more fundamental case, the case for altruism. It turned, I only got as far as chapter six, which is more than half of the book. I skimmed the rest, and it turns out he does not make the case for altruism. But at least he's in favor of sweatshops. Yes, he does get it. Sweatshops in countries that have them, where people all too often under what we consider the age of majority. Kids are working in factories, sweating, or making sweatshirts. No, working in sweatshops, it turns out those are the best jobs they can find. And if you take those jobs away, if you legislate against sweatshops or just guilt Levi's and you know Nike into not making shoes in those countries, those families are worse off. The kids are worse off. So McCaskill gets it. He's not an idiot. He is, quote, effective. So that suggests he's doing his honest best or at least his best, you decide for yourself how honest that is, given his premises. And, you know, 10%, what he recommends all of us give to some good cause besides ourselves, you know, that's no worse than what the church had been doing for centuries. So 
But just in case effective altruism wasn't self-exclusionary enough, you know, give to everybody except yourself. While McCaskill doesn't recommend that you follow your passion in choosing a career, at least in the first book, he does steer you toward work you'll be good at and find satisfying. All the better to be an effective altruist. Just in case worrying about the state of the whole world isn't enough, with his new book, McCaskill encourages you to also worry about the world, the worlds to come, and every person who will ever live. Hmm. McCaskill provides the premise of long-termism right up front. In his new book, What We Owe the Future, here, right from the introduction. Now, you imagine this. McCaskill writes, imagine living in order of birth through the life of every human being who's ever lived. You know, your first life begins, say, 300,000 years ago in Africa. And after living that life and then dying, you travel back in time and are reincarnated as the second ever person, born you know, slightly later than the first. And once that second person dies, you're reincarnated as the third person and then the fourth and so on. And 100 billion lives later, you become the youngest person alive today. Your quote-unquote life consists of all of these lifetimes lived consecutively. Your experience of history is very different from what is depicted in most textbooks. Uh, famous figures like Cleopatra or Napoleon account for a tiny fraction of your experience. The substance of your life is instead composed of ordinary lives, filled with everyday realities, eating, working, socializing, laughing, worrying, praying. And life lasts for almost four trillion years in total. Again, if you could stretch out the lifetime of everybody who's ever lived so far. You experience cruelty and kindness from both sides. He gives countless examples of what that would be like. And he says, that's your life so far. Your life, we would hope, would be just beginning, because even if humanity lasts only as long as a typical mammalian species, say one million years, and even if the world population falls, say to a tenth of its current size, 99.5% of your life would still be ahead of you. <laughs> in the chat, Kindred Amy says, what about the parallel universes and those in the future? Well, we're getting to the ones in the future. We'll talk about the multiverse another time. If you knew you were going to live all of those future lives, hmm, if humanity survives for hundreds of millions of years remaining until the earth is no longer habitable, or the tens of trillions remaining until the last stars burn out. What would you hope to do in the present? How much carbon dioxide would you want us to emit into the atmosphere? How much would you want us to invest in research and education? How careful would you want us to be with new technologies that could destroy or permanently derail your future, remember, your future is every life out there. How much attention would you want us to give to the impact of today's activities on the long term? 
This is the kind of thinking that convinces someone like Will McCaskill to convince hundreds of thousands or millions of people to worry about the future and not just the future that your kids will inherit or your grandkids will inherit or the next few generations will inherit, which one could make a rational argument for why you should care what happens after you die, even though you won't be here around to care about it then. But no, 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 we're talking about the future. He writes, future people count. Again, we're skipping forward here in the book. The idea that future people count is common sense. Future people, after all, are people. They will exist. They will have hopes and joys and pains and regrets just like the rest of us. They just don't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, and he gives examples that are, are much more reasonable than what sounds here. He says, suppose a plague's going to infect a town and kill thousands and you can stop it. Before acting, do you need to know when the outbreak will occur? Does it matter just on its own? No, the pain and death at stake are worth concern nonetheless. So that gets us started. That's the premise. In the book, Will McCaskill states the following. Now try this on for size. Future people are disenfranchised. Future people have no vote. They have no voice. Oh, those poor future people. Uh, I'll be giving answers at the end, but the obvious answer here is they will have a voice. They will have a vote when they exist. And this is just as with us now, you and me. Past humans, they didn't make any sacrifices for you. They didn't make any sacrifices for me. They didn't make any sacrifices for anybody in 2023. Nor did they need to, nor should they have even wanted to. Robin in the chat says, what about the people that live today? Damn right. Now, also, this implies a fixed pie. And we hate the idea of a fixed pie. Objectivists, in fact, any reasonable person says, bake your own pie. There are only so many resources and opportunities, and if we use them all up now, they'll not be available to those future humans then. We're using up, he says this in interviews, we're using up stuff they're going to need. <laughs> McCaskill gives a great example because it makes the point on his premises that you should always be concerned about the foreseeable and the unforeseeable future. And on our premises, well, it makes a different point. Here's the hypothetical. Think about this. You're hiking in the woods. You're hiking down a trail and you encounter, or maybe you cause, a broken glass bottle. There's shattered glass on the trail. And you know, there's some people who hike these trails barefoot and there are animals that walk these trails. And so you pick it up. You pick up the pieces so nobody will step on them later. And McCaskill asks, why does it matter how much later? Think about that for a second while I say thank you to Michael Sweet in the chat, in the super chat, which means he put dollars on his comment and says off topic-ish, on Wednesday we found there is 
no giant heart the day God. There's not a Valentine's game. Well, there was St. Valentine. Anyway, back to Michael's comment. And Robert, you'll show us that there is no floating abstract God called the future. Absolutely right. Thank you for that, Michael. Appreciate the super chats. I'll remind you that any super chats, any questions that you tag with a few dollars, that money goes to support the Ayn Rand Center UK, makes it possible for them to do what they do, which makes it possible for me to do what I do right now. So thank you for that. Very much appreciate it. If you're not already a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK, there is a link at the top of the chat, pinned to the top of the chat that only the gods in the background can do for you to click to become a member. So do that too. So thank you for that. And again, William McCaskill asks, you're walking down the trail, you see the broken glass, you pick it up and it's trivial, it's no sacrifice. Takes a moment. But why does it matter how much later, if you knew nobody was gonna be coming down that trail, say for a week or a year, still be inclined to pick it up. doesn't matter how much later. A person who might walk on it tomorrow and the person who might walk on it in a thousand years, same guy, should have the same value to you, right? And this gets to the root of my biggest challenge, which is you can't have unbounded care or concern. You couldn't, even if you tried, for the people who will live in the future, or even the people who will walk that trail in the future, you have no idea above and beyond taking care of an immediate problem with a reasonable range and scope, how to help them. Even if you wanted to, you don't even know if the trail will exist a thousand years from now. And this is also the answer to Peter Singer, who I mentioned earlier the man behind modern altruism, well before effective altruism, who says the effective altruists, they don't get enough. And the issue of the drowning child in the fountain. The classic example is there's a child who's stepped into a deep fountain. You're walking by, you just bought a fancy new pair of Italian leather shoes or a new suit is often the example given. Child is in the fountain and he's drowning. It's immediate. You risk the child's life if you take off the suit or even take time to take off the shoes. You jump in there, you save the kid's life. You think, oh, there's $500 down the drain. Save the kid's life. Most people would do that. A few people would stop and say, well, put the kids at a little more risk and take off the shoes, take off the coat. Not the point. The point is most of us, if that kind of emergency is happening right in front of us, would take that, that action. Peter Singer has made the point and McCaskill makes it in another way in the original book, um, Doing Good Better, that it shouldn't matter that the kid is drowning in front of you. Because right now, as we speak, there are kids who are dying of countless preventable conditions, whether it's diseases or you know, tsetse flies in Africa or all sorts of reasons why kids are, are suffering that $500 on your shoes, if you just mailed that out to some decent charity and the Doing Good Better book will give you a list of the better charities and not the ones that squander most of your money, you could save many more lives than that one drowning kid. And why do we care more about what happens right in front of us than we do what happens around the world? 
you know, here's the crux of the matter. McCaskill was asked during an interview about this hypothetical. The questioner says, well, what if I just don't care? What if I just don't care about the people in the future or even helping people right now? I put out a post on Facebook and I asked my multitudes of good friends on Facebook. We're not already friends on Facebook. We should be. Make sure you send me that request. And I asked the many, many hundreds, thousands of people, what's the best case for altruism? Why altruism? Why is altruism a moral ideal? And I've read in philosophy, I want to know, though, when you talk to people who are altruists, how do they justify that? And it turns out that most of the answers were um, picking on the altruists. But the few who tried to be serious, even those answers, they didn't go very far. They didn't go very deep. Yeah, okay. So again, in an interview, Will McCaskill is talking to the interviewer and the interviewer says, well, what if I just don't care? What if I don't want to help? And interestingly enough, Will McCaskill said, well, you know, that question equates to why be moral? Why be ethical? And he declared that that question is unanswerable. The call to be moral and therefore altruistic is, in his words, quote, a bedrock question, unquote. You know, in our words, that would be a basic premise or a moral axiom. You know, it's one thing for the average person to make this mistake. We often confuse altruism with benevolence, for example, generosity, charity, kindness, benevolence. You know, to regard, but, but, but take the non-objectivists out there, just decent people. They regard morality as a frozen abstraction in Ayn Rand's terms. Morality means altruism to these people. They've taken that concept of morality. They've equated it. They've frozen it. They've equated it with altruism. It's frozen with that definition. But Will McCaskill is a philosopher. You know, in the discussion, he gave these examples. I'll quote him. He said, well, why should I go to the movies? Because I'll be happy. Why should I not cut somebody off? Because then they'll be unhappy. And if someone counters, well, why should I care? There's no further reason you can give. That was interesting to me because objectivists will know. And Leonard Peikoff has given this answer. People say, well, what if somebody says, I just choose not to be rational? And Leonard Peikoff has made the point that if they're that explicit, if they say that, then you just end the conversation. There's nothing further to say to somebody who's dropped logic and reason. The, the, the words don't mean anything. There's no point in continuing the conversation. And in a way, it's, it's a sanction of that person's attitude to continue to talk to them as if reason can reach them. But that's what McCaskill is saying about altruism. If somebody doesn't adopt altruism, which he regards as morality, as, as, as coextensive, as the same as morality, as I say, he, he stated the question equates to 
why be moral? Now, I would answer, I suspect all of you would answer. I'll tell you the answer in a moment. But first, we have a super chat, another super chat from Adherent of Lady Columbia. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, Columbia is associated with America, Victoria with England. And I never understood that as a kid, all those references of Columbia and Victoria. Why is Victoria England and Columbia America? And then eventually I found out, well, Victoria, uh, Queen Victoria, the, the, Europe, the uh, English Empire, and Columbia is Columbus, Christopher Columbus. So anyway, adherent of Lady Columbia is in the super chat with $5. Thank you for that. And says, why is the consideration that those who have a set of values of any type will not seek to keep those values relevant, even in a non-immediate manner. Why is the consideration that those that have a set of values of any type will not seek to keep those values relevant, even in a non-immediate manner? I'll have to think about that one because I'm not entirely sure what's being asked there. But let me work on that. Now, my answer to McCaskill in this context is your life is an end in itself. And your pleasure, you, the actual individual person with an actual individual human mind and actual individual human emotions and values, your pleasure, your joy, your ultimate happiness are reason enough for you to pursue and achieve values. Not by some floating philosophy, but it's a simple fact of reality. Now in the book, McCaskill gives an answer to the charge that the future will be so much better. This was my immediate re uh, reaction to his thesis. Happily, he actually answers this. Unhappily, his answer is, well, anyway, he answers the charge that the future will be so much better and not just in general and technologically and in terms of our wealth, but the future will be better morally. Again, I would say it will be so much better that it makes no sense to sacrifice anything now for that future. But McCaskill refers, among other things, to, quote, value lock-in versus, quote, building a morally exploratory world. Let me say that again. Value lock-in. And this is the idea that whatever our values are right now, we cling to them. We become bitter clingers. No, we cling to our values right now. And this happens. There are times in history where values became stagnant. People clung to them even out of context versus building a morally exploratory world. What's a morally exploratory world? Well, this is an interesting perspective, and, and McCaskill shares this with a lot of modern thinkers. This idea that ethics evolves. We are becoming more ethical, more moral over time. And I can see why they believe this. They cite advancements in every domain of human endeavor. Um, consider romance and sexuality. You know, marriage used to once be the province of, of caste and arranged marriages and dowries and bride price. And now you have recent developments where, you know, we're way past 
anti-miscegenation laws, mixed marriages. Now we've gone past gay marriages. Of course, we allow romance outside of marriage. We're way past, we're, we've evolved, we've gotten better. We, moral advancement, moral evolution. And this is true in a thousand ways. The same holds true for political economic rights. You know, from the elimination of slavery and indentured servitude and castes and classes. Um, you know, I recently watched the biopic of Beethoven's Eroica, his third symphony, tells the story about why his romance, the romance, the great love of his life, why that could never come together. It's because one of them was an aristocrat, Beethoven was not. That's all in the past. We have evolved. We've gotten better. And I would agree this holds true across many spheres of aspects of culture and life. But I disagree that this quote-unquote evolution is continuous, endless, subjective. We're not just improving. We are honing in on truth, on reality. And there's only so far you can go before you get it right and you're done. There are objective answers and there is an end to each of these evolutions. There's only so much better you can get before you get it right. Now in the book, there are compelling arguments made, many compelling arguments. For example, chapter five, extinction and engineered pathogens, uh, real concerns. Things which right now we need to work on. Well, not so that a thousand generations from now people will still be alive. There is no reason to think that long to have a passion to resolve these kinds of issues. But his discussions of them are very good. They're very well written. Chapter six, collapse the fall of empires. Well, empires do fall. Hopefully the right ones fall. In modern times, we don't see the fall of the better, they're not empires, but the better civilizations. There are more holdouts or callbacks to worse times. Obviously, none of that is guaranteed. China now is taking a turn back in the wrong direction. Soviet Russia fell, but what replaced it was not ideal or even good, not by a long shot. But those exceptions stand out because by and large, people are becoming more civilized all the time. Problem is philosophically, they don't know what that means. So some of the greatest countries, the remaining greatest countries on earth are still mixed bags, wildly mixed bags. But to compare Europe now to 300, 400, 600 years ago, it's still one of the greatest places on earth to be. And the United States, obviously, obviously the best place in the world to be. But McCaskill does discuss, yes, a collapse, fall of empires, extreme catastrophes, which still happen. Very sad heart goes out to the folks in Turkey this week. Climate change, fossil fuel depletion. Oh, wait a minute, fossil fuel depletion. I talked about that last week in an episode entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It, again. Of course, we have all the ammunition we need against that right here. If you don't have a copy of The Moral Case of Fossil Fuels yet, pick that up and give that a read. All the answers you need when Will McCaskill says, what about fossil fuel depletion? 
But as I said last week, we never actually run out of these things. As they become more rare, we find alternatives, but we never actually run out of anything. Now, I discussed some of that last week. Link is in the show notes. Now, in case they're not already obvious, some more answers to McCaskill's thesis. And the, again, the first one that he answers in the, I love this. He puts the answer, the objections to his thesis right in the appendix. And one of the objections is, won't the future be without us worrying about it? So much better than anything that we have now. There's a review of the book that criticizes the book's thesis by stating this, quote, we owe the future more than the arithmetic of morality, unquote. The arithmetic of morality. Uh, but I would argue that math itself is against McCaskill. Again, the odds of your efforts, think of your efforts, your investments, your sacrifices, the odds of any of that having the intended impact on future people. You know, whether by the trillions that McCaskill talks about, again, he's using math, he's saying, you know, there may be 8 billion people now, but we're talking trillions in the future will be impacted by what we do. Just run the numbers. And of course, it stands to reason that we should be doing more for them because there's so many more of them. You know, if you could take a small action to save a million people, wouldn't you do that? But I would argue, and it's great that he picked up this objection, and I don't think he gave a good answer to it. Otherwise, I wouldn't still make the argument. That the intended impact on future people, what you do right now in 2023, and imagine for a second, if you're not, that you are a multimillionaire or multi-billionaire, and there are things you can do that can have a massive impact. The odds of those things having an impact on that future a thousand generations from now, or even a hundred generations from now, simultaneously so slim and so unknowable, so unpredictable. And even if you beat the odds, the impact will be so small that it is at best the worst conceivable investment you could make. But at root, the biggest problem with the book is the same as the problem with the previous book, Doing Good Better. The, let me give a quote from Ayn Rand. The objectivist ethics proudly advocates and upholds rational selfishness, which means the values required for man's survival, qua man, which means the values required for human survival, not the values produced by the desires, the emotions, the, quote, aspirations, the feelings, the whims, or the needs of irrational brutes who have never outgrown the primordial practice of human sacrifices, have never discovered an industrial society and can conceive of no self-interest, but that of grabbing the loot of the moment. The objectivist ethics holds that human good does not require human sacrifices and cannot be achieved by the sacrifice of anyone to anyone. It holds that the rational interests of men do not clash, that there is no conflict of interests among men who do not desire the unearned. 
who do not make sacrifices nor accept them, who deal with one another as traitors, giving value for value. Unquote the objectivist ethics from the virtue of selfishness. McCaskill's book, McCaskill's Altruism, is very, to steal his word, it's very effective if you accept his premises. And it's a book that, if you accept the premise of altruism, it is reasonably, if not rationally, argued. If you ignore the root question, why? Why is that the ideal? So, what we owe the future, what we owe the future is to take ideas, including our moral premises, seriously. What we owe the future, what we owe to the future, what we really owe, to, in reality, owe to the future is to live our own best lives. As in McCaskill's own sweatshop example, that living your own best life, that will secondarily, just purely as a side effect, lead to the greatest possible future. Not just because your own success will lead to future successes. But think about this. Because the moral premises you've adopted to make that happen, the philosophy of objectivism, of rational self-interest, is precisely what the people of the future will need wholly as much as you and I need it now. Right here, right now on Earth. Now, stop worrying about future humans. They will be fine. In fact, they will be so fine <laughs> that if we could remotely conceive of how awesome their lives will be, we'd be green with envy. So stop worrying about Will McCaskill and his fellow ineffective altruists and get out there and live your own best life on earth.